Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str. You have somehow ended up listening to the stuff that's real that you didn't know was real, but also is cool podcast or sturdy dick were bayek or uh, never mind. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another Stuff That's Real podcast. I can never go through the entire title. Uh, do it. Like, I need like two cards or something. <laughs> yeah, do it. Stuff That's Real That You Didn't Know Was Real, but also is cool podcast. I am Kevin Tomlinson. That's it. That's not you, it. You had an extra, you had an extra uh real. in there. Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> getting back on track. And we're on a little bit of a delay. So if you hear us talk over each other, it's not because either one of us is rude. Uh, it's simply because of the lack of good signal in one of the other places. I don't know. I'm in the middle of a campground in Ohio right now, so probably me. So, well, and I might as uh, well. But be I'm Kevin Thompson. Uh, I am one half of the hosts of the Stuff That's Real podcast, and of course, Nick Thacker, who rudely interrupted me from Hawaii, did it on purpose, <laughs> is also here. So, yeah, this started to be fun, man. Do we want to cover anything before we jump into the, the stories, or are we good? We good? I think so many good. things happening. Yeah, a lot of things <laughs> happen. I think we're good. Let's things, jump into it. Let's jump into it. Yeah, I misspoke, <laughs> and now it's going to haunt me forever. Okay, so first of all, I'll talk about mine. So, and I shared this link with Nick, and so he'll share it with you, dear listener. But the title of the article I'm quoting from is called Revealed. This is from The Observer. Revealed, Isaac Newton's attempts to unlock secret code of pyramids. This is a headline that has thriller novel written all over it. I couldn't wait to dig in. We've talked about Isaac Newton before on this show, right? Didn't we talk about some of his like alchemy? uh, I think you brought his alchemy stuff. Actually, I think it was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago for us. For us. Who knows when you'll hear him. For everyone else. (laughs) Yeah. So this is kind of tied into that same story. Isaac Newton, he's one of my favorite characters in history, just because he's into so many things. Like he's a scientist who also dipped his toes into the waters of like alchemy and other metaphysical stuff. So, and this kind of ties in with that because he actually, let's see, when was the date? I saw the date earlier, but back in like 1680, he went on this sort of journey of solo scientific sabbatical, we'll say. And among other things, he started to study the pyramids. And what he was looking for was he wanted to kind of crack the code on the unit of measure that the ancient Egyptians used to build the pyramids because he thought that if he could figure that out, he could use that to uncover things like the location of Solomon's temple where the apocalypse is supposed to take place or start. But he could also use it for other things. Like he figured that if he could find that unit of measurement, it might unlock the secrets of the universe. So he being a mathematician, he was very keen on that. So 
this is fascinating because this article came about because they discovered some papers. You know, he had all these notebooks he had written. He had all these handwritten notes that were all about things like alchemy and that sort of thing on top of all his scientific work. So he's got like these papers that are sort of him trying to mathematically work out the riddle of the pyramids in a sense. And they were burned. This is kind of funny because the article actually states it as a in a real world dog eat my homework scenario. His dog named Diamond who was a hound dog had jumped onto a table and tipped over a candle and burned some of the pages from uh, his calculations about the pyramid. (laughs) So again, right there is like a perfect thriller like plot, right? The start of a thriller novel because you got these like singed papers with some missing information written by Sir Isaac Newton himself. So it's a pretty fascinating story and it's interesting because the the pyramids themselves are such a enigmatic part of our history. Like there's so much that we don't know, uh, including like the original builders, the original build dates. Like we thought we knew some things and there's some sort of accepted history about the pyramids and the ancient Egyptians. But it's one of those things where modern day science has kind of disproven a lot of that. The sort of the Egyptian Historical Society refuses to change any of that story or allow anyone to come in and verify anything. Like this is a typical thing, by the way, in the world of academics, particularly in science. We always like to think of scientists as being open minded, but they're typically they're pretty closed minded. Like it's hard to rock a science off of except a scientist off of accepted history. As it in were. archaeology, uh, in, in, in the earth science. sciences and world sciences, yeah. particularly, yeah. you know, because yeah. I don't really know if that's true yeah. with chemists or biologists, but for certain archaeologists, anthropologists, they typically cling to these, you know, quote unquote, known and trusted academic belief systems, I guess, for lack of a better yeah. term. And, and they'll cling right. to it very tightly. <laughs> very tightly to the point of blacklisting people who come out with opposing theories. And so you've got this sort of what would you call it? a fringe group, fringe science group that, you know, they have new and evolving theories about the pyramids, for example, and their actual age and the actual, maybe the actual history of the people who built them. They're not allowed to publish. Like, this is where it gets questionable when you, you hear that phrase, believe science. I love science. I do believe science. Uh, I believe in the discipline of science. But scenarios like this where science won't allow anyone to come along and contradict what they have agreed to be the facts. So it's a fairly frustrating series of events, really, because you've got, I bring up Graham Hancock all the time, but the, you know, sort of his ilk. You've got this group of anthropologists and archaeologists who have been studying these things their entire lives, who've discovered new information, have new theories. But the only way we ever get to hear about it is on sort of quack sounding shows like you know, Ancient Aliens or something. Right. Uh, but meanwhile, they actually have more proof and evidence for some of their theories than the folks who have the established historical theories. So Often, yeah, it's not always. You no, know, like I think of it this way: like science is, a, or should be anyway, it should be a verb, not a noun. Um, yeah. And and a lot of times we try to make science a noun. Well, this is a fact. It's like, well, this is the verb of science, like the action of science, the methodology. Yeah. Literally, is defined by searching for a way to disprove what we accept as a theory. You know, as 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 a current known fact. That's that's kind of um, the point. Yeah. And so with you and I know probably if any of any science, probably more than most about anthropology and archaeology because of the stuff that we write in fiction. Yep. Which of course the good fiction is always based on known and accepted fact in science. 
And so it's certainly true, like you bring up Graham Hancock, you know, who's kind of at odds with these guys. And they always disclaim him by saying he's, well, he's just a journalist and all that. Well, he's a really freaking good journalist. And he's a really, really smart guy. And he's raising questions that don't necessarily disprove the accepted theories, but they could. And what our quote unquote Mm -hmm. scientists are doing in the archaeological and anthropological communities are doing with Graham Hancock's questions are just completely precluding them from even being asked. They're saying, well, that he's not, he's just a journalist, so we can't even ask that question. Where a real scientist would say, well, that is an interesting question. Let's examine that. Let's study that. Let's see if we can disprove this accepted theory. They would see evidence. And then they would take that evidence and try to run with it. And it, ironically, I think that if Isaac Newton were alive today, he'd get no traction at all. Right. Probably, he would get canceled. Quack, you know? <laughs> His whole thing. So pulling back from this article again, he was looking for the unit of measurement that the Egyptians used because he suspected that the Egyptians knew how to measure the circumference of the earth, which is a big deal. Today, we don't think that's much of a big deal, although... Ask any individual what the circumference of the Earth is, and they probably can't tell you. Uh, yeah, I, don't really I can't tell you without looking it up. But <laughs> big, they had a mathematical means of figuring that out, and this was what Newton was after. At that point, he was trying to prove his theory of gravity. He was trying to unlock various secrets, including secrets from the Bible. He kind of saw the Bible as being a coded message of sorts. That's what um, I noticed in this article. I'm really curious about, it says here he was trying to unlock codes hidden in the Bible. And then that's kind of all it says about it. And I'm like, well, well I want to know what codes are in the Bible. Because that sounds like a, a fun way to spend a weekend. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yet another thriller plot, basically. But yes. So yeah, this was all very much in line with what Isaac Newton's kind of purpose in life was. He was an interesting cat, man. It's no wonder that he kind of keeps popping up because he was into so many different things. He was really a polymath, like Leonardo da Vinci and a few others. Elon Musk, even. These guys are polymaths. Like They study broadly in a variety of disciplines, and then they apply, they sort of cross-pollinate knowledge and apply it to solve new problems or to create new technologies or whatever. So it's really always very interesting to find cats like this in history. (laughs) It is, yeah. And it's pretty accepted. MO of geniuses is not just really being narrow focused on something deeply, but kind of broadly focused on everything, if that makes sense. There's a, there's a quote there. I can't remember what it is, but these guys would study everything from music to math to all the sciences to, of course, classical physics, which is what Newton essentially invented. I mean, literally invented inadvertently. And, you know, one thing over in the physics yeah. world could inadvertently lead to a discovery over in the alchemical world and or the real chemical world. And so it's right. just really fascinating. All these guys are fascinating. Da Vinci drawing sketches and basically showing us how to make a helicopter back before we had electricity. is just really, really cool to me that these guys were thinking in terms of what's next. How do I build on all these different fields of study that I've been fascinated by all my life, put them together in a way that is real, that makes sense. Yeah, it comes down to curiosity. And it's kind of funny because these days, whenever I'm interviewed about practically anything, they always ask what your advice is for writers or what your advice is for life or whatever. And that's one of my answers now is to cultivate bottomless curiosity, like infinite curiosity. Yeah. Because that's what really sort of is that line between a normal person and a genius. If you start studying all the great geniuses in history, you start to realize that that's the single common trait that they have. Is they were just astoundingly curious about everything. So, yeah. Even the most mundane and boring things. 
Right. Yeah. Ben Franklin is a great example of this as well. You know, he's a guy who started a a fire department while he's starting a post office and he documents every single thing down to a very granular level of detail that we would consider micromanagement today. But it's because he's just tweaking things. He's a systems builder, right? And he's showing his genius through not just this idea. What if we could put out fires by carrying water on these trucks and helping people not die? But he's saying how to do it. And we have to organize in, in certain areas and neighborhoods and all that. And we can have multiple fire departments and you have to pay for which one you want to be subscribed to, all that stuff. He did it. And of course, we're still using a lot of his his stuff today. And that's why he keeps popping up in these same talks of genius, because he's able to just pull from a, just a vast assortment of stuff that he, that he studied over his entire life. And he probably didn't expect it, but all of a sudden things started culminating in, well, now here's electricity on one hand and here's a printing press on the other hand. And how can I combine them and make them better? And that's what genius is, you know? Yeah, exactly. I ought to know. You ought to know. <laughs> I ought to know. It would be nice yes. to know. <laughs> There's a quote that reminds me of a quote I heard recently that, and I don't remember who said it now, but it was, uh, what the world really needs is more humble geniuses because we're starting to run in short supply. They're running out of us. <laughs> running out of us. Well, the humble part, we'll see if I can. Yes. That no, well, that's, that's cool that's stuff, man. my story, man. Yeah. Isaac Newton. I love the guy. I need to do more research about him. I haven't added him to any of my books yet, but I, I think it's coming. I think it's coming. Yeah. I got some stuff coming up. <laughs> you got some stuff, huh? Well, I got oh, some yeah. stuff. I was taking a shower and that's where all my good ideas come from. I was thinking about my article today and what I'm going to title the episode. And I thought, you know, this would be a good way into my little half here. Kevin, if I started a band with you, of course, that you'd be the drummer or something. I think I'm going to call it Rivers of Mercury. What do you think of that name? Rivers of Mercury. Rivers of Mercury. Why not? Why not? <laughs> Why not? Well, so there's the reason for this, uh, believe it or not. I wanted to talk about the terracotta army in China, yeah, which I know Mm -hmm. you've heard of. I know we've talked about a little bit before. These thousands, somewhere like 8,000 standing warriors made out of terracotta created by somewhere near a million workers involved in it over the course of its construction. I started looking into it and I was like, hey, that's cool. And that's fascinating. And Steve Barry wrote a book about, I think it was Cotton Malone book where He's doing some stuff there. And I feel like a lot of us kind of know that these terracotta warriors are out there and they exist in China and the Chinese archaeologists are digging them out of the ground and they've got a museum set up now. And all of it was for the first emperor of China, Emperor Chen Shihuang, right? And I started researching it a little bit and I found that we actually haven't opened Emperor Chen's tomb yet. We haven't even gone inside. All these warriors are like standing guard outside the main tomb. Oh, man. So the main chamber is supposed to be and I, I can find the actual numbers here, but the reason it took so long and so many people to build this isn't that they were all you know, sculpting these terracotta warriors. They were actually building Emperor Chin's tomb. And what they wanted to do was, of course, give him everything he would need in the afterlife. So there's like entire buildings inside this place with food on tables and I mean, just everything ready to go. And apparently it's supposed to be like a scaled down replica of the entire known China of the time where his empire was. So they have like the Yangtze and the Yellow River inside there. There's like hundreds of rivers and they're all flowing with mercury. I I remember hearing about this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and the reason we know, or we assume we know is that this was all written down by a Chinese historian. I think his name was Qian. I think if I'm pronouncing that right, I don't speak Chinese, but now this guy is typically kind of taken with a grain of salt. Like there's some skepticism around his writings because he does exaggerate and He'll write down mythical legends and some of the, he just kind of writes in a fantastic way rather than in a truly journalistic way, I guess. 
And so modern historians and and archaeologists typically would kind of perceive this as a skeptic would. And up until we found these terracotta soldiers, we probably could have dismissed Chan's claims completely. Then we found all these warriors, right? Then we found all these, some farmers actually found these terracotta warriors and they started digging them up. And then eventually they realized there's more of them and more of them and more of them. And now there's thousands of them, just like the historian Qian said. And so going further into his works, he tells us exactly what Emperor Qin, his tomb is going to be and what's going to be inside it. And so it's sort of this weird, like Schrodinger's tomb. (laughs) We don't know what's in there until we open it. And the Chinese government won't let anybody open it because as we've seen with these terracotta soldiers outside standing guard, as soon as they like 15 seconds, even after they get exposed to the air, their color starts to fade um, the, the paint flakes off. These things just immediately start to deteriorate. And so they're afraid, the Chinese government is afraid the same thing will happen to uh, Chen's tomb if they open it. So we know where it is. We found it. We just won't open it. And yeah. to me, that's just absolutely, first of all, super respectful, which is, I think it's really cool. Yeah. They're essentially waiting for the technology to open it so that we can open it without causing damage. I don't know what that so means, putting a big bubble around it or yeah. something. Yeah, but preserve it. But it's, so it's respectful, it's respectable, but it's also really, really cool. Just imagining what could be inside this thing. What's in this tomb? Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that drives me nuts, man. Now I want to send in robots or something. Oh, me too. I want to see this thing, you know? I got to see and it. What if, I got to know what's in here. If they supplied him with everything he would need to sort of replicate his life in the afterlife, who's to say there isn't like an entire culture of people living in that underground city? Still, to this day, living down there, just yeah, going about I mean, business. why not? They're just breeding and they grow crops. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Right? Like they figured out a way to have some sort of sunlight, you know? Could totally. Yeah, hey, so there's a book by Jeff Long called The Descent. Have you read this? No. Oh my, oh dude, you have to read It's amazing. It's probably, I would call it a modern day thriller classic. Like it's pretty good. Uh, okay. I mean, it's very, very good. But the premise is similar to that. It's like there is some group of people that like went underground. But I don't want to give too much away, but they essentially evolved and live underground. And so then they, some mind collapse happens and it, it connects the tunnels so that they can get back out again. And so obviously very terrifying for the modern populace, for these weirdos yeah. coming out of the ground. Dude, it's so good. It's pretty much exactly what you just described. Okay. All right. Pretty cool. Of course, Check it out. You know I highly recommend it. These people, because there's rivers of mercury down there, they'd all be insane because of mercury poisoning. Yes. So they'd be like psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> but they probably have a, maybe there's fish down there and the mercury that's sometimes in fish doesn't affect them because they have a, what's the, what am I, what so I thinking? Like a green tea uh, is actually something people use to counteract mercury. So oh, yeah? if they're growing green tea and if they're growing tea down there and they're drinking lots and lots of green tea, it, it could actually filter out the mercury. That's what I've been told. <laughs> we should write this book, man. We got to write this book now. We can totally write this book. That's one of those things that like when they start talking about like if you want to lose weight, get trim and everything, you need to eat a lot of fish to get the, you want to eat fatty fish, you know, but you want to avoid mm-hmm. certain fish because they have high mercury content, like certain tuna and things like that. So yeah, that's yeah. one of the things I learned and looking into it was you should drink lots of green tea if you're eating lots of fish because they will help hmm. with uh, passing the mercury out of your system. So there you go. I didn't There's know you like fish. Way. Do, you like, do you eat fish? I like fish. Yeah, you love fish. I like shellfish. I, eat, I don't uh, really like fish. Shellfish is not, that's not good. That's the cigarette butts of the ocean, shellfish. Well, you shut up. I'm, I do what I want. <laughs> no, you're right. Though. Had, if God created any animal that he said, humans, just don't eat these things, it would be lobsters and crabs, right? Like Lobsters. These cockroaches yeah. that crawl they around the ocean. Like, we should not be able to get yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. 
These are things that filter out the literal crap of other animals from their environment. <laughs> like they're feeding on the stuff that other animals produce as waste. So yeah, delicious. Well, they do taste delicious with butter and garlic. <laughs> so I actually had Dungeness yeah, crab uh, last night. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. This week you're single. I'm right? single for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Family's all moved yeah. to Colorado now. So I'm kind of holding the fort here, eating as much shellfish as I can. I probably will die. Cramming shellfish and steak down your gullet. Don't even have time to unwrap the shrimps from the shells. Just popping them down. Like (laughs) (laughs) I'll admit I like shrimp. I like shrimp and I love oysters. Both of them are really not the greatest thing for you. But you know, I I don't think I've I've gotten into the oysters. oysters. I've tried the cooked oysters. You know, garlic and butter all over it and stuff. And it's like it's a little slimy, but that tasted good. Don't like the raw stuff, though. No, I, when I say I like oysters, I mean I like fried oysters. <laughs> <laughs> the Rocky Mountain fried oysters. Right. No, no, not Rocky Mountain. Although I've had Rocky Mountain oysters, but yes. I've never tried this. Yeah, that's... So, by the way, we're in the van, right? We're in Ohio. I'm sitting like three feet away from my wife. And as soon as I said, I've tried Rocky Mountain oysters, she did a spit take. Uh, she divorced you? With her drink. Immediately. <laughs> Took a ring off she, and threw it at you. She is not. If she, <laughs> hey, look, if she hasn't divorced me by this point, <laughs> after months know, of man. living in a like 90 Rock, square Rocky feet, oysters. There, that might she, be the one that does it for me. That's not going to do it. She's put up with a lot more disgusting things for me than that. Well, on next week's show. On next week's show, Kevin just reads a list of disgusting things his wife has seen him do. (laughs) Stuff that's real. That ought to get us through a couple of hours. Yeah. (laughs) Stuff that's real. Real talk with Kevin. Yeah, man. Cool stuff. So this is, you know, I could see these guys. Yeah, they're hiding out underground. I'm with you. That was my first thought was like, what if there's still people down there? You know? Yeah. There's stories here that like all these 700,000 workers involved, like they burned the bridge before they could get out. And then they they closed the gate behind them. They basically locked them inside this thing. Yep. We've heard that before, right? We bury the Egyptian builders so that nobody knows where the tomb is, all that stuff. And so I'm like, well, maybe they didn't right. die. Maybe they just moved in. And they're just living under there eating oysters. One of the interesting facts about the Terracotta Warriors is that every one of them has its own features. Like, none of them are identical. They all look different. Yeah, they're all sculpted. It's like they were sculpted by individuals to look like they represent themselves or something. So, I mean, I could see that as they they crafted them after each of the soldiers that was put into uh, this underground city with their families. Yeah. And if it is a scale model, I mean, it's maybe scale, but it's still immense. I mean, that's got to be a huge cavernous space. So that's what it seems like. Yeah. There would be, yeah. They might turn cannibalistic and through generations of inbreeding and mercury poisoning, they might be something we don't quite recognize as human. So I could see, I could see a setup. I'll I'll read it. I will. I'll read it. It sounds like I don't have to read it. I'm writing it. Sounds like you already, you just wrote it. Uh, (laughs) So. I could see a setup where you've got someone is about to gain access to this thing for the first time. Brand new technology is going to allow them to go in without disturbing anything. You know, it'll completely preserve it. And he has a theory, you know, that they're going to find millions of bodies. And he's real excited about the prospect of there could even be a living civilization down there. And we're going to make contact, you know, and they even bring in people who are experts in ancient Chinese and the language of ancient China and they're all set, and when they get in there, like suddenly they're a, half the team is attacked and devoured by these creatures. And then over the course of the novel, we reveal that these are the mutated ancestors of the people who were buried in there. I could totally see this. 
You know what? You know what that sounds like, Kevin? What does that sound it like? It sounds like The Descent by Jeff Long. You should read that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not quite fair. I mean, I've, this is an original Kevin Tomlinson story at this point. I can't read it. It is. You can't read it now. I'm yeah, going to go on record right now officially saying I have not read that book. So fair. if I write something similar, it was not a ripoff of The Descent. <laughs> that's fair the world heard it here first kevin all dozen people listening will know that you thought of it on your own independently of jeff long this could be the beginning of like a zombie apocalypse or something though exactly that's exactly what i was going thinking about (laughs) we always fall back on that stuff it's always some virus or mutation or something yeah we got to come up with new stuff no something new and original i'll come up with something new and that's, that's the direction I was going to take with it, where I was going to say they get prepared to go in there knowing that there's probably people there and they're probably going to infect anyone who comes in with some ancient virus or bacterial yeah. infection, you know? And so they basically protected themselves. They got the hazmat suits on there, on themselves. They've done all the <laughs> rabies shots or whatever. And they go down there and they don't expect to get eaten by these people. They fully expect a virus and instead they get zombies. And that would be an interesting twist. Or here's a twist. They get down there and because they've been consuming this special green tea to combat the uh, mercury (laughs) poisoning they've actually after a generation or so they started living longer and so and not reproducing as often so what they encounter is like actually the third generation of people who were living down there who are thousands of years old there you go now that's a twist that's a twist there we go and then those guys are like fierce warriors and they start just taken over china that'd be sweet <laughs> or maybe they've known about us all along they're an advanced society and they've known about us all along from our broadcast signals and so they're that's what the dark net is it's it's all run by these guys that's, that's, that's all it is they're a bunch <laughs> of brains without bodies right. so. they float around yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need to end this because uh, this is just oh, we too, uh, this. too much fun yeah we need to end this so, i got a book to write now Got a book to write and go watch Futurama. (laughs) (laughs) Watch Futurama. Yes. All right. Well, this was fun. Yeah. I think we can combine these two ideas into one good thriller novel. Rocky Mountain Green Tea Oysters. (laughs) Rocky Mountain Green Tea Oysters. (laughs) Right. Get your daily dose of mercury, everybody. Cancel out by the green tea. Get these on Amazon. I'm going on Amazon right after the broadcast. (laughs) I'm going to work with my Rocky Mountain Green Tea Oysters. That's the title of the show. There it is. Rocky Mountain Green Tea Oysters. Yes. All right. Well, I guess that's going to wrap us up, man. You want to lead us out? Sure. Thank you for listening to the show this week. We hope you had some fun with us. We don't want to have this be too formal and too kind of pre-planned for obvious reasons. We think it's just a little bit more organic and genuine. Authentic, I think, is the word we're supposed to use these days, right? Yeah. This is what we do, you know? Kevin and I are just kind of shoot the shit, and and we just talk about what is cool and stuff that's real, if we can find stuff that's real. Because the stuff that's real, but it's also cool, is literally what we're looking for when we write our thrillers. This is inspiration to us. And so if you're a writer or aspiring writer, you're in the right place. This is a great show to not only hear you know some ideas and get inspired and all that, but Kevin and I have been in the trenches together doing this for a long time. And we want to hear from you. Maybe we can help. Maybe we can commiserate with you. Or maybe we can just be friends. We like meeting new writers and old writers and writers who are in between. So if you want to reach out to us, you can just email us hello at stuffthatsreal.com. And I'm sure somebody will respond to you. One of our many assistants will respond and put you in a queue and on a phone tree. No, I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll get it. It'll be in our inbox and we'll say hi and we'll let you know that we're actually alive and not just AI robot overlords on a podcast. So all yeah. that said, yet, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here and we will see you next week. Goodbye, everyone. 
stuff that's real. Looking for a great new thriller? Check out Conundrum Publishing. We publish books that make you think. From mind-bending thrillers to heart-wrenching dramatic action-adventure novels, our books will keep you up all night, turning the pages eager to find out what happens next. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to conundrumpub.com str for three totally free thrillers. You won't be disappointed. Again, three full-length action thrillers totally free at conundrumpub.com str.